I, are you ready for this, baked a peach cobbler. Yes, I know you're saying, him, the man we call macho pastor? Because I know that's what you call me, right? I'm very in touch with my feminine side. I um, wasn't that thrilled with the, the crust. I thought it was a little thin. The uh, filling was a little runny, but personally, I thought it tasted great. The kids, on the other hand, had a different verdict. Um, I gave Rachel a bowl of it. She took a couple of quick bites, carried it over to the sink, set it down, and she said, I think I need to be a little older before I try this. <laughs> She's going to be a diplomat. All right, let's see what our uh, postage is for today. You've got mail. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> okay. Here we have a package of Bassett's candy, licorice all sorts. Any of you ever eaten these? Yeah, how many come, if you've been to Britain, you've had them there. I didn't even know you could get them around here, but these are wonderful. And you'll be wondering what this has to do with the city of Pergamum. I'm going to try to tell you. If you were the mail carrier for the postal route, the Roman postal route that dealt with uh, southeastern Asia Minor, as the province was called at the time, present-day Turkey, your first stop would have been Ephesus. We visited Ephesus two weeks ago. Then if you went 35 miles north, you would have come to the coastal town of Smyrna. Then if you proceed another 30 miles north and a lazy 10 miles north, uh, northeast, you will go up a river valley and you will arrive on what was viewed by many to be the most spectacular city in Asia, Pergamum. Pergamum, Pergamum means citadel in Greek. And as you walked in on it as a traveler proceeding up that river valley, you would have understood why it, why it was so named. Because this town was built on the top of a thousand foot cone-shaped hill that jutted out of the ground around it. It was quite imposing as you walked up. In fact, the, the most imposing part of Pergamum was there was a great terrace that had been cut out of the side of the mountain. It looked like a chair as you looked up to it. A huge chair that had been carved out. And on this marbled terrace, they situated many of the glorious temples that they had built for their idol worship. Pergamum was significant for other reasons. Pergamum was the capital of Asia. It was the province of Asia. It was the seat of the province of Asia. Uh, it was also the center of emperor worship. Now, when I say that, do you understand what I mean? You realize that the Roman emperors reached a point where they suddenly decided they weren't human anymore. They were also divine. And so a cult of emperor worship began to develop. Pergamum had the distinction of being the first city to actually build, actually build a temple to the worship of a living Caesar. It was built in 29 B.C., to honor Caesar Augustus. And you'll remember that that was the Caesar who was in power at the time of the birth of Jesus. That's right. Um, there are a couple of things that you need to know about this city that will help you understand the text that we are about to read. First of all, it was uh, the seat. Pergamum, as the capital, was the seat of Roman authority on the, in the east. It was essentially the Roman throne in the east. Do you have that? Uh, obviously Rome in the west, but over in the east, it was Pergamum. Keep that in mind as you are listening to the text. They were the seat of power. Secondly, the proconsul of every capital uh, had what was called the right of Ius Gladii. What's that sound like? Gladiator, right, for sword. He had the right of the sword. Any proconsul could execute anyone he wished to at will, with no due counsel, with no reason other than he had decided to do it. All right, you have that in mind? So it is the seat of Roman authority, and the proconsul had the right of the sword, Eus Gladii. Keep that in mind now as we turn to Revelation 
chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. And now, Lord, be unto us uh, heavenly food as we partake of this meal. Be to us hidden manna, empower us, strengthen us as we consider your word and how it speaks to us this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you pay attention? Eus gladii, the right of the sword and the seat of Roman government. Now, knowing these two things, do you see how the imagery of this portion of the letters makes more sense? It comes to life for you. Pergamum was, it looked like a throne. It looked like a seat. It was perched on a hill. Even more, it was the actual seat of Roman authority. And yet the Spirit of Jesus, when he's speaking to them, says it is, it says who is sitting on that throne? Satan. He says it twice. says it twice in verse 13. And think back now also to how Jesus introduces himself as he's writing to the Pergamum church. How does he introduce himself? Remember in the past two examples we've seen that Jesus appears and introduces himself taking a portion of that vision that we had of the Christ, of the Son of Man. Remember? In chapter 1. He captures a portion of it and uses it as his introduction. Remember, for instance, when he was talking to the church of Ephesus. He was the man who he introduced him as the, as the one who walks in among the golden lampstand. Remember that the golden lampstands represented the churches. In other words, Jesus was saying, I know that your hearts are cold towards me because I've been walking among you. I have witnessed it for myself. I've taken a personal assessment of it. To the church at Smyrna that is suffering persecution, preparing to be arrested and persecuted further. Jesus gives them hope in the introduction that he uses to to describe himself. For he says, I am the first and the last. I am the one that was dead but is now alive. So the people who are about to die, he greets them as the one who has uh, uh, complete control over life and death. As the one who, in fact, is eternal. This morning, we are looking at a text where Jesus is speaking to the church that is the, the center of Roman government in the east. The church that is, in fact, the, the capital city the, the throne of Roman power, the, uh, the, the emblem of all that is great about Rome, the proconsul of which wields the use of eos gladii, the right of the sword. How does Jesus appear to this church? He is the one, he says. I am the one who has the sword. You see that? I am the one with the sword. You who think you have power, you who think you have the control over life and death, I am the one who has the sword, and I tell you, I'm coming, and I will bring judgment, and my judgment will be true. 
Now, what is he going to judge? What does Jesus have to judge of the people in Pergamum? Well, let's take a look. Look at your text. First of all, Jesus, as he always, almost always does in his letters, he begins by offering words of encouragement. Did you see that? And what does he praise them for? Well, he praises them for their courage in the face of tremendous adversity. Remember, this is the center of emperor worship. Now, if you have in the center of emperor worship a new religion that is rising up that says there is no Lord but Jesus, well, you're bound to have some trouble. And that's exactly what is beginning to take place. In fact, there have already been heads budding to the point that one man at least has lost his life. What is his name? Antipas. Antipas. This is the only thing we know about this brave man. But somehow when he was invited to step up and light incense and declare Caesar is Lord, as all Roman citizens were required to do, his faith in the lordship of Jesus would not allow it. He refused to do so, and so he was executed. And although we know nothing more from him about him in Scripture, tradition tells us that he was executed in quite a gruesome fashion. Apparently, they set him in a large metal brazed dish. They lit a fire underneath the dish and roasted him to death. That's not the way to go. Jesus affirms their courage in the face of this martyrdom and the others that might come. But he goes on, though, and says, but I have, in verse 14, and you don't ever want to hear this from Jesus. Nevertheless... I have a few things against you. That's not the words you want to hear coming from Jesus. He says, you have people who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Do you remember Balaam? The guy with the donkey in the Old Testament? The donkey that talked? Anybody remember that from your Sunday school lessons? Did anyone go to Sunday school? (laughs) It, It appears in Numbers chapter 22. The story of Balaam goes like this. The man named Balak was the king of the Moabite kingdom. And he saw the Israelites before them. And basically everywhere they went, Israelites were eating everybody's lunch. So Balak says, I need a leg up. Find a priest, find a prophet who will be able to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. So they found Balaam. And they invited Balaam to come and pronounce the curse. Balaam goes and prays to the Lord. And the Lord says, you can't curse these people. I've blessed these people. So he tells Balak the answer to that. Balak says, well, let's just try it anyway, shall we? And so he keeps, what Balak does is he brings Balaam to a different part of the, the prominent promontory that looks out over the, the, uh, the Israelite army. And he says, well, look out over here. Could, could you, do you think you could just curse this little portion of the army? Balaam toying with it again, and he shouldn't have done it. He knew what God's answer was. He would go back and he prayed and came back and said, no, I can't bless them, curse them. In fact, he would pronounce a blessing. Balak was frustrated. He was furious. He says, you're, you're blessing them. I want you to curse them. All right, come over here. Look out over this portion of the army. Can you curse at least this little portion of the army? Four times he does that. And four times Balaam says no. Now, to be honest with you, he toyed with it way too long. Perhaps because he was getting a little uh, honorarium every time he made a, a, a blessing or a cursing. We don't know. But he was messing around with it way too long. Finally, he goes home after having pronounced the final blessing. But what we discover later on is that Balaam's worst work was done not in cursing the people, but what he talked Balak into doing. And here's what it was. He said to Balak, listen, king, if you want to really destroy these Israelites, here's what you need to do. Send your beautiful Moabite women over to the army of the Israelites and seduce them. Seduce the men. And then after you've seduced the men, have them bring them back into the worship of the idols which these beautiful women worship. You do that and you will break down the army. 
Balaam's advice was taken. That's exactly what they did. And we read later on in Numbers that as a consequence of that, God struck the Israelite army with a plague that killed 24,000 men. This was the teaching of Balaam. All right? That sets the context. It's a long story, I know, but you've got to understand that. Now, when Jesus condemns the church of Pergamum for tolerating the teachings of Balaam, I believe this is what he is saying. Listen, there are some in your midst who are teaching lies. They are persuading you to worship idolatrously. They are persuading you to participate in temple prostitution, ritual prostitution, all the while that they are also worshiping me. They are persuading you to eat these feasts that are made from food that has been sacrificed to idols, all the while that their lips are partaking of my Eucharist. Like Balaam, you are allowing this pagan culture to bleed its way into your lives and into your faith to the point that you are no longer worshiping me alone. You are sharing my devotion with pagan idols. And I am a jealous God. I will not tolerate it. If you think this Roman proconsul has the right of sword, wait until you see what will happen when I visit judgment upon you and idolatrous people. That's what he was saying when he said you tolerate the teaching of Balaam. The church at Pergamum was experiencing a creeping idolatry. And bit by bit, they were beginning to kind of wink at the pagan practices. Bit by bit, they were allowing elements of idolatry to seep into their Christian faith and worship. Bit by bit, they were compromising the gospel, exchanging it for idolatrous and immoral worship of emperors who weren't even very good human beings, much less divinities. Idolatry. We're talking about overcoming idolatry today. And so what does a package of Bassett's licorice all sorts have to do with idolatry? Well, just this. Last week, I was hungry for some junk food. We went to our favorite junk food drawer, and we pulled out our... I pulled out my package of Bassett's. Now, I didn't know that until yesterday you could buy Bassett's in here. It comes from Britain. And my friend Marjorie, when she came over to be with our family, she brought... Bassett's all sorts for me last summer. So I have been rationing them, eating one or two a day and leaving the rest of them in there because I, I wanted to spread the goody out a little bit. But I really was I feeling a need for a binge, a, a, a licorice binge. And so I went in there, grabbed the all sorts, and began to throw them down, just cramming them down as I'm walking in the dark downstairs to the TV room. Got down there, forked, uh, put a scarf down, three or four more, was enjoying them quite a bit, not paying much attention to what I was doing. Until I noticed, as I moved another piece of licorice toward my mouth, that there was something hanging from it. I thought it was a piece of lint, until it started to lower itself down (laughs) by its own little silken thread. And I realized, to my horror, it was a white maggot. My response precisely. I thought I was going to puke. I begged my wife, go up, get me anything to put in my mouth. I, please, and, oh. I, I could never tell this story on communion Sunday. We wouldn't get through communion. <sighs> now you are really wondering what that story has to do with idolatry, aren't you? Just this. Idolatry is surprisingly like that little snack of mine. See, we think we are partaking of something that is tasty and good when, in fact, we are filling ourselves with garbage. 
a rotten, wormy substitute for the real thing. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, I'm no idolater. I worship Jesus. I'm a Christian. You aren't going to find any idols on my mantelpiece. Maybe so. How about in your garage? How about at your club? How about on your building site? I believe that the United States of America is the most idolatrous nation in the history of the world. Our unprecedented power and prosperity has made it possible for us American Christians to worship the Lord our God alone. Impossible for us to worship the Lord our God alone without finding our affection and our adoration that ought to be devoted to Him being drawn to other things. And I count myself among that group. We make wormy little idols out of our recreation. Now, there's nothing wrong with golf. You know I love golf. You know I love tennis. There's nothing wrong with taking in a football game. But we have made it a national obsession. The amount of money that we spend on sports is ludicrous. Did you see the recent paper, the article about the new Houston football expansion team? Did you see how much they had to pay to secure that? $700 million for the right to have that team. Plus, the guy's going to have to build about a $300 million stadium which you'll probably come back to the taxpayers to finish paying for. A cool billion dollars right there. That's insane. And the salaries that we are willing to pay our athletes are frankly obscene. I I hope Joey Galloway sits out the rest of his career. And we're passing this obsession on to our children. I want my kids to be athletic. I want them to enjoy sports. Rachel's playing soccer right now. She's playing t-ball. But the level of expectation that we've placed on our children is It's crazy. And I find it outrageous that there are some sports leagues that brazenly schedule games on Sunday mornings and would consider you a religious fanatic if you objected that your kids needed to be in church on Sunday rather than the play field. We ought to protest. We ought to boycott. We ought to do something about it. It is not right. We make wormy little idols of our careers. We we neglect the only people in the world who really deserve our devotion and affection. And we pour our lives and our passions into a company that could just as likely as not fire us in the next year. We come home from our business trips to discover that our little girls are now buying prom dresses and somehow we missed the last 10 years of their life. We make idols of our celebrities. Have you ever really paid attention to the pretty faces that grace the pages of People magazine? Most of them are pathetic oversexed, underweight airheads who have trouble stringing together two coherent sentences and whose private lives are constantly screwed up. Are these really, these pitiful creatures, these rock stars and actors and actresses, are these really the people who are deserving of our devotion? But the juiciest maggot on which we like to nibble in this country is materialism. We really believe that we can buy our happiness, and boy, are we trying. The last statistics I saw indicated that the average American spends something like, average American spends something like 115% of their income. You get that? We are spending 100 and 515% of our income. Many of us have been sucked into that black hole of credit 
out of which we cannot extract ourselves, all in the pursuit of this foolish belief that a new car, a new house, a new wardrobe, a new face, a new something is really what I need to be happy. Will you listen to me? It is a lie. It is an idolatrous lie of Satan. There is nothing that you own right now that will not someday end up on the junk heap. Shouldn't that give us pause? We need to learn more of what it means to give ourselves away instead of acquiring more for ourselves. Our all-church questionnaire that you completed, 800 of you or so completed, indicated that we give on average 2.5% of our income to the work of the Lord. That's actually pretty good compared to other churches across the country. That's pretty good. The problem is we aren't being compared to other churches. Looking, for instance, at the biblical standard, we're not doing that hot. Because the biblical standard is and always has been the tithe, the 10%. Off of the top, no less. That was the starting point. And then offerings came beyond that. Both the Old and the New Testament present this wonderfully uh, freeing news that God has given us everything that we have and He gives us the joy of enjoying 90% of all of that and asks that we give 10% back as an expression of our love and devotion to Him. Some of us aren't carrying our weight around here. But as tempting as it might be to tell you the difference it would make to the ministries of this church if everyone was a tither, and it would, or if everyone was a 5%er or a 3.5%er, I will leave that to Sam God and the other elders in the weeks to come. See, the point of this message is not how much the church has to receive in order that it can function. The point of the message is really how much we have to give away in order that we can function. When our material possessions mean more to us than our devotion and obedience to God, we have become idol worshipers, and we are chewing on maggots. But there is an out. Jesus promises something at the end of that whole section. He offers a promise to the overcomers. And what are those two promises? They're odd, aren't they? He promises them hidden manna and a white stone with their name written on it that no one will know. Now, what's that mean? Darned if I know. I'll take a stab at it, though. The hidden manna refers, obviously, to the story of the manna. You remember that when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, God gave them miraculous bread from heaven, provided for their needs. And to remember that moment as a memorial, they scooped up some manna, put it in a jar, and set the jar inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, tradition says that when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C., the prophet Jeremiah got the, the, the jar of manna out before the temple was destroyed, carried it across the where Moses was buried and buried it underneath the hill somewhere. And that tradition says further that one day when the Messiah comes back, that the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem, and that all of the accoutrements of the temple, including that hidden manna, will be brought forth, replaced where it belongs, so that all things can be culminated. So that's first. Hidden manna refers to the coming of Jesus and his ability to sustain, to provide all that we will need. Then for the stone, that's a tough one. It could mean amulets. There were many stones and charms that were worn at this time. Uh, when jurors were considering a case before trial, they would cast their not, not 
guilty verdict by throwing a white stone into a jar. So maybe he's saying, listen, if you are overcomers, if you trust me, if you put your trust in me, I will pronounce not guilty. I will declare that there is no condemnation for you and I will give you this stone that has your name on it, a name that belongs only to you and promises that you will be saved. But there was another use for a white stone with initials on it. They were called tesara. And tesara were passed out to people as tokens. You might have, for instance, a white tesara to get into a banquet feast. It was your, it was your passage, your, uh, your token that allowed you passage. You might have a tesara to claim your portion of the corn that you had coming to you. Even gladiators were given to Sarah to indicate that they had fought gallantly, they had won, and they were now retired. All right, let's try putting all of these together. What could this mean, this image of hidden manna and this image of the white stone? I would suggest at least one possible understanding would be this. Jesus is saying to us, please, my children, do not settle for the unclean, rotten food of idolatry. Don't settle for that food that you eat that has been sacrificed to idols. Don't settle for that temple prostitution that, that disguises itself as religious worship, which is in fact just immorality, run rampant. Don't settle for that. He says it cannot sustain you. It will in the end only destroy you. If you trust in me, if you believe in me, I will provide for you. I will provide everything you need to sustain you, both on this earth and in the life to come. Why settle for worms when you can have manna? This isn't nearly as fun a sermon as some I've preached. And we haven't laughed nearly as much. Perhaps because this one strikes closer to home. We Americans, we prosperous gig harbor Americans, we prosperous gig harbor Christian Americans have got to come to grips with the idolatry of our time, which is materialism. We have got to come to grips with that. And Jesus said, my children, there's something better than this. I give you lovely things. Enjoy them. But don't let your heart belong to them. Don't be drawn to them. And don't allow the influences of this world to begin to bleed in and chip away and compromise the purity of my gospel. For the truth of it is, my children, I am your sustenance. I am the one that will sustain you. Only I and anything else is just a handful of worms. Let us hear that word today. Let us receive that hard word into our hearts today. Amen. Let us stand as we sing together our praises to the Lord. Forgive us, O God. Forgive me when we do not really believe that you will take care of us. When we do not really believe that everything we have is a gift from you and belongs to you and that we are but stewards of it. Forgive us when we allow the influences of this culture to begin to chip away at the edges of our Christian faith. 
to begin to compromise those things that we know to be true. Forgive us. We pray that you would release us from that, Lord. And even now, as we offer to you this gift of wealth, your wealth, we pray that you would give us hearts that want to give out of gratitude and the acknowledgement that all belongs to you. Use this wealth now to spread the good news to a culture, to a society, to a community that desperately needs to worship the right things. For we pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Save us, Lord, save us, Lord. We are not worthy, but we long for your love, long for your love. Not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, is going to walk into the kingdom of God. Not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, is going to walk into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. But everyone that keeps his will and keeps his commandments, keeps his commandments, do not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, is going to walk into the kingdom. Listen to me like a sensible man. You can hold life in the palm of your hand. Listen to me, eternal life can be yours. If you just follow, if you just follow me. Not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, is going to walk into the kingdom of God. Not everyone who cries, Lord, Lord, is going to walk into the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God, but everybody that keeps his will and keeps his commandments, keeps his commandments, do not everyone who cries, Lord, 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 is going to walk into the kingdom. I don't know what the Holy Spirit has been saying to you today. Probably it's been troubling. It was to me. But I have some good news for you. This is the day of gospel. This is the day that Jesus has made to remind us that all who are in Christ are forgiven and set free. And if you would like to experience that and aren't certain of it, I want to remind you that we have a prayer team that meets to my left after every service. If you have anything at all that you wish to raise up, don't delay. Do it today. Perhaps you've been struck by what has been said and the Lord has, has called to your mind that which is idolatrous in your own life. Repent. Repent today. And offer it back to God and say, I am your servant and you alone are worthy of my worship. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.